Good afternoon, everyone. Got it right, so that's victory number one. I'll take it. Will you pray as we turn our attention to God's Word now? Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You. And Lord, we ask and pray for Your Holy Spirit to be at work in us and through us. Right now in these moments, Lord, I just confess uh, my weakness. No good will come apart from the work of Your Spirit. So Lord, we ask and pray for You to move in power among us today. We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this, this is a scatter plot. On a scatter plot, you can draw the line of best fit. So you look at the dots and you sort of see where they fall on the graph and then you sort of average the line and you draw this trend line and then when you draw the trend line, you can sort of see the trajectory. And if we looked at a scatter plot of our country right now, when we look at the trajectory of our nation, the world is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians. And as a result of that increased suffering of various kinds for our faith seems like it is on the horizon. Here are just a few data points. We are in the middle of Pride Month, an entire month dedicated to celebrating sinful lifestyles that God calls an abomination. And it's everywhere. Corporations like Kellogg's, Fruit Loops, Lego, Disney, Coca-Cola, Pro Sports... The government is flying uh, rainbow flags at our embassies around the world. Public libraries are doing drag queen story hour. The media and Hollywood are promoting the homosexual and transgender uh, behavior and other (laughs) sinful lifestyles, quite frankly, as good, something to be embraced, celebrated. They're pushing uh, us to affirm the lies Lies like a boy can become a girl and a girl can become a boy. Using cartoons like Blue's Clues to normalize depraved lifestyles to children. Kids are being encouraged to undergo life-altering hormonal treatment and uh, gender reassignment surgeries. Schools are indoctrinating our kids at the youngest ages. Teaching all kinds of sexual perversion is normal and healthy. Doing so without parental consent or notification. Abortion on demand is celebrated in our country. In her graduation speech, a young girl recently proclaimed abortion as a moral good that is necessary for a woman to be able to fulfill her dreams. Never need to kill your child to fulfill your dreams. And if you see your child as an obstacle to something greater, then you probably have the wrong dreams to begin with. And yet, she's being celebrated as courageous by various people in the media and in politics. Even so-called churches flying rainbow flags and BLM flags, celebrating sin, supporting Marxist ideologies that are contrary to Scripture, appointing women as pastors, appointing gays, lesbians, and trans people as pastors, which is blasphemous and offensive to God. People who have stood for truth or spoken up have lost their jobs, lost their business, lost their livelihood, lost their reputation. The cancel culture in our world is ruthless for people who dare to speak up. We live in a culture of intimidation into silence. 
the assault on the family and the church seems relentless. And even though the secular worldview is so full of holes and self-contradictions that a feather could make it fall over, we are being pressured to affirm it. It doesn't take a lot of discernment to see the trajectory of our nation if things continue the way that they are. The world is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians. Greater opposition and suffering for our faith seems likely. And we want to prepare for that. You ask the question, why First Peter? I want to study First Peter because he wrote this letter to encourage Christians who were suffering for their faith. How should they respond? How should they think about these things? How should they live? First Peter is going to encourage and equip us to remain faithful to Christ. And this tagline tries to get at and capture the overall theme of this book. Hopeful and holy in a hostile world. That is what the book of 1 Peter is all about. Now this morning we're going to look at an overview and the opening two verses of this short letter. The message for us this morning is you're God's chosen and beloved pilgrims. Know who you are and to whom you belong. That's the application. The primary application is to believe these things, these truths. Knowing who you are equips you to resist the culture and remain faithful to Christ. So first let's do a brief overview. Because context is king. Yes, that is right. Context is king, so let's get our bearings. If you're planning on a trip, uh, it's good to know where you're going. So let's look at this. Peter is the author. He identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 1. This letter is not simply good advice. It's God's word spoken by the apostle Peter. The word as a precious gift to us. Because it helps us to know the truth and distinguish between the truth and lies. And right now, our culture is full of lies. If we're going to remain faithful, steadfast, true, we've got to know the Scriptures. So, we've never done this before as a church, but as we go through this book of 1 Peter, I picked out seven texts for us to work to memorize together as a church. They're short, they're one to three verses. We'll take a few weeks, two or three for each text, and we will work to memorize them together. Then on Sundays, we will do a check-in for encouragement. Okay? So the first one is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. I'm going to read it. Just look there if you have your Bible open. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You can see the twin themes right here in this first little passage. Hope, future hope, 
and holiness. We're going to work to memorize these passages together and be anchored in the Scriptures together as a church. Peter's writing uh, most likely from Rome, which he calls Babylon in his final greeting, chapter 5, verse 13. Babylon had become the center of, uh, or a symbol, I should say, for worldly power that opposed God's people because of uh, its uh, influence in the Old Testament. So now, currently, Rome is the corrupt center of worldly power at the time of this writing. Now, the Bible also puts Mark, who's mentioned in the same verse in the final greetings, in Rome about the time that Peter is writing. Colossians 4.10, Philemon 2.24. We know that historically Peter was martyred in AD 64 during the persecution of Emperor Nero. So, 1 Peter was most likely written in AD 60-62. to 62. Gives him enough time to write... Second Peter as well, before he is martyred, just as Jesus said that he would be. The audience. Throughout this letter, Peter refers to his readers in ways that strongly suggest that they're Gentiles in background. He tells them not to live in the passions of their former ignorance, 114, which suggests an idolatrous and pagan past. He says, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your father, 118. He says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, 210. He tells them the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, chapter 4, verse 3. It's really hard to, to imagine or see Peter saying these things about people who were former Jews. Now, it's not to say that there weren't any Jewish Christians in these places. We know from Acts chapter 2, verse 9, that there were Jews from these places who heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. So, Peter's addressing a mixed audience of Jewish and primarily Gentile Christians. This is a circular letter. It's being sent to the, the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Most likely, he's telling us the route that the courier would take this letter and deliver it. Sailing through the Black Sea to this city, then going through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, back to Bithynia where he'd catch a boat and go back to Rome. The courier and the co-author is Silvanus. We learn that in chapter 5, verse 12. Now, Peter mentions those who preached the good news to you in chapter 1, verse 12. This suggests that he was not the first person who evangelized these churches. But he learned of their suffering for Christ. And he wants to uh, encourage them. He writes to them as an apostle to encourage their faith. So we know from this letter that the Christians in these regions were suffering for their faith. It's mentioned in every single chapter of the book. And when we look at these texts, we find that this suffering is coming from a number of different places, from their friends and family, from their neighbors, from the government. It's coming at them from all sides. Now, the evidence of 1 Peter points us away from some kind of official, state-sponsored, empire-wide persecution, like under emperors Nero, Domitian, Trajan. It's not there. That doesn't mean that the government's not involved. Think about all the different times that, that Paul is punished by the local authorities. Why were they being persecuted? Because they refused to participate in the semi-religious Roman uh, imperial cult. 
Because, as a church, they were staining against the immoral practices of their day. Because, as a church, they were gathering to worship, but they weren't worshiping uh, the gods of the culture. And on top of all of this, the Christians dared to claim that they knew the truth. This violated an important tenet of Roman society that one scholar calls conforming tolerance or reciprocal acceptance. I hope that sounds familiar to you because it's so similar to what we experience in our own day where tolerance is lifted up as one of the chief virtues but only tolerance for people who agree with you. It's what D.A. Carson calls the intolerance of tolerance. Their situation is so similar to our own. So, because of these things, Christians were distrusted, they were disliked, they were even considered dangerous because of their exclusivism. People were suspicious of them, they were hostile to them. They were criticized, mocked, discriminated against, falsely accused, put in prison, beaten, and sometimes even killed for their faith. That kind of suffering was happening to Christians all across the Greco-Roman world. Chapter 5, verse 9. It was the common life of the Christian. So Peter tells them, don't think that what you're going through is strange. Now Peter writes to encourage them in the midst of their suffering for Christ. How does he do that? How should they respond? Well, we're going to see that as we go through this short but relevant letter. Summarizing broadly, he anchors them in hope. Their hope of heaven is God's chosen people, and he calls them to holiness. They suffer for Christ, but when they do, they're to follow Christ's example and not retaliate, but entrust themselves to God while doing good, even good to their enemies. Chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, chapter 4, verse 19, and so forth. Christ is never far away in this book. We'll see it as we go through it. He is the golden thread that runs through the whole thing, holding it all together. And Peter is telling the church, (laughs) pay no attention to what the world thinks and says, but pay great attention to what God thinks and says. Now, with that overview, let's dig into the opening two verses. The main focus in the opening of this letter is on their identity as Christians. That's what we're going to see in these first two verses. We're going to take this in two parts, verse 1, verse 2, just to give you a heads up of where we're going. First we see your God's elect exiles. Your God's elect exiles. Or we could say your God's chosen and beloved pilgrims. We see this in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. The Christians are God's elect, His chosen ones, His beloved, and they're exiles or pilgrims, sojourners on the earth. They're dispersed, they're scattered around the world. And throughout this letter, Peter is going to take the language that God uses to describe His people in the Old Testament, and he's going to pick that up and he's going to apply it directly to the church. The letter is packed. It is just packed with Old Testament quotes and allusions. Pound for pound, only the book of Hebrews and Revelation have more Old Testament quotes or allusions than this book. That is incredible, considering how short this is, just five chapters long. He does this, though, this 
strategy of his is to anchor these predominantly Gentile Christians in their identity as the new covenant people of God, God's people. So in this first two verses, we see elect, exiles, dispersion, and sprinkled with his blood. All four of these things come from the Old Testament. And they're applied to New Testament Christians. So let's look at the elect. The elect are those whom God, out of love, has freely and graciously chosen to be His people. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. In love, He predestined us for adoption into His family, according to the purpose of His will, for the praise of His glorious grace, Ephesians 1.5. His choice is not based on any goodness or worth in us, but for His glory. And that theme runs cover to cover in the Bible. Christians then are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Colossians 3.12 And this leads to three things. It leads to humility, because we don't deserve salvation. It leads to praise, because we're thankful for salvation. And it leads to comfort, because our salvation depends on God. We know that God always works for the good of those that He has called to Himself. The elect are those chosen by God for inclusion into His covenant people as recipients of His favor and His blessing. Now, I have a bunch of peanuts here. I'm going to try not to spill these all over the place. I've got a pretty poor track track record (laughs) of spilling things. So, now, I've reached in and I've chosen one peanut. You, peanuts, okay? This peanut is special. Not because there's anything particularly special about this peanut. It's special because I have chosen it. Amen. God chose you out of the rest of the world. And because He chose you, you're special. The Bible says you are His treasured possession we read in Deuteronomy 7 just a moment ago but this peanut it's not just special it's also different precisely because I've chosen it I have separated it from the rest of the peanuts in the same way you're different separated from the rest of the people of the world it's for this reason that your exiles here. Well, what's an exile? A sojourner, a pilgrim, what is that? It's a person who is a stranger living in a foreign land. They're not living in their homeland. As Christians, we're temporary residents here. This is not our true home. We're pilgrims passing through. A couple of summers ago, Gospel Fellowship Church went as a team, we took a missions trip to the Ukraine with Mission Eurasia. We were there for about 10 days. We were sojourners there. We were, for a short time, living in a place that's not our home. We're strangers in a foreign land. They spoke a different language. They wore different styles of clothing. They ate different kinds of food. They served us gray hot dogs for breakfast one morning. It wasn't good. Right? They, they had a different, a different money. They have a different way of doing things. They, they, I noticed that they put their light switches six feet off the ground and on the outside of the bathroom. 
So you like flip on the light, you go in the bathroom, but like someone else could come and shut the lights off on you. I don't know if it's because they're like, like, hey, you've been in there long enough, buddy. I'm like, flick the switch. I don't, I don't know what they're doing. Foreign country, okay? I can tell you that as Americans, we stood out like sore thumbs. We couldn't help but be different there. And actually, that was part of what opened up the opportunity for us to share about Jesus Christ because they were wondering, what are you doing here? And Peter is going to tell us later, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. People are going to wonder, how do you have this hope in this life? Explain this to me. So there's a connection to our witness and being exiles in this world. But... While we were there, I can tell you that we did not forget where we were from. And the longer we were there, the more we longed to go home. And it's exactly like that for us as Christians. We can't forget our true home. The more we walk with Jesus, the more we long to be there. Amen? So Peter's using this image of a, of a sojourner to describe God's people. God's people have always been sojourners. Think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Think about Israel in Egypt and then in the wilderness and then in exile in Assyria and in Babylon. God's people have always been sojourners. It's part of who we are as God's people. But I want you to notice something here that's super important. It's different for us as Christians, because we're not exiles because we've sinned and God's kicked us into a different land, okay? We're exiles because God has chosen us to be His covenant people, to be His people. He has set us apart. That means as Christians, no matter where we live, we're never at home. We're never home. Our citizenship's in heaven rather than earth. We follow a different king. And that is what puts us at odds with the world around us. Christians are considered strange because we live in obedience to God rather than in conformity to the world. So when we follow Christ, the way that we think, the way that we speak, the way that we act, the way that we even view the world around us is different. It seems strange to them. Now... You go back in this country, in America, there was a time when the common morality of the people was closer to Christian morality. They were never the same. Never. But they were closer. Those days are long gone. We live in a thoroughly secular country right now. What the culture is calling morally good is often exactly the opposite of what Jesus says is morally good. And now that doesn't just make us strangers to them. That invites their scorn and opposition. Because our God is so different than the gods that they worship. That means we're going to be persecuted. But there's hope because God chose us to be His people, to benefit from His favor, to belong to His kingdom, and He's going to see us to our true homeland. That gives us unshakable hope when we suffer for Christ in this life. 
Now let's look at verse 2. Verse 2, Peter shows us how and why you became God's people. He uses three prepositional phrases to describe their identity as elect exiles. He says they're God's elect according to the foreknowledge of God in or by the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. Those three prepositions describe God's elect people. So let's look at one of each of these. First, you're God's chosen people according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God's foreknowledge is more than just knowing about you. It means that He knew you personally before you were born. He marked you out for salvation. He set His covenant love on you, which is what we talked about a moment ago. I think it's encouraging to see this, though, because it means that we are living in this place, in this time. We've been scattered here according to God's purpose. It's not random. God has you here in this place and time for a reason. Our calling and circumstances are in His hands. And His choice in eternity past has consequences in the present, both in terms of how we live and how we're treated. We're meant to be different, but so many Christians seem, seem to think that our job is to make blending in with the culture our goal. Second, you're God's chosen people by the sanctification of the Spirit. Normally when we think of the word sanctification, we think of growing in holiness, but it can also mean being set apart. And here it means both in this context. By the Spirit, we're born again to a living hope. We're set apart as God's covenant people. God set us apart, or the Holy Spirit, I should say, set us apart to God, and as God set apart people, we're to live holy lives, morally pure. Christians are distinct from the world. We don't follow their ways, we follow God's ways. Right? So it's, it's both. We're, we're set apart as God's people to live holy, Christ-like lives. Third, we're God's chosen people for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. His purpose. He's telling us the purpose. Obedience to Jesus, that makes sense. Uh, we know as Christians that when you become a Christian, you're submitting yourself to Jesus Christ. Right? When you come to Jesus, when you become a Christian, when you're converted, you, you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you also turn away from your former life and you follow Jesus Christ. So that makes sense. But what in the world is going on with this sprinkling with blood? And why does that follow the obedience? Like, why does he list that last? Well, to understand that, we've got to go to Exodus 24. When God made His covenant with the people of Israel... Moses, well, first they made a sacrifice, they sprinkled some blood on the altar, and then Moses took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they pledged their obedience to God. Exodus 24, 7. Then Moses sprinkled them with the blood of the sacrifice, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Exodus 24, verse 8. He sprinkled them after they had accepted the covenant and pledged their obedience to God. The point is, is that this sprinkled blood, it confirms the covenant. It's, it ratifies it. It seals it. It's like, this is true of you. You've been cleansed. You've been forgiven. You've been accepted by God. You belong to God. That's what's happening. Now, they broke the covenant, right? But... Christians have been sprinkled with the blood of a new and better sacrifice, a new and better covenant in Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says, If the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so we're called or invited to draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. The point is, is that he's talking about you've been sealed. You are God's new covenant people sealed and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice all three persons of the Trinity are, are at work in accomplishing our salvation. God the Father chooses and plans salvation. God the Son secures and accomplishes salvation by shedding His blood as a payment for our sins. And God the Spirit applies salvation to us by calling us to faith and obedience as God's holy, set-apart people. Now, let's apply this. Let's try to apply this truth that you are God's chosen and beloved pilgrim. First, rest in your salvation. We know what this letter is about. We know that Peter is going to... Is, is, his aim in this letter is to encourage Christians who are suffering for their faith. And the very first place he points them is to the salvation that is accomplished for us by God. Because the triune God accomplished your salvation, you are secure in God's hands no matter what you face in this life. You need to know that. Rest in that. If you are going to endure faithfully, suffer for Christ, you have to know you belong to God as His chosen and beloved. You are secure in Him no matter what you face. Because God is the one who called us to Himself. Because God is the one who accomplishes our salvation. We know He will surely bring us all the way home. And that hope we're going to see in this letter, that hope is an anchor for our souls. It's an anchor in the storms that we're going to face. That's number one. Number two, to remain hopeful and holy in a hostile world, we need to know who we are and to whom we belong. In Christ, we're God's people, chosen and beloved. We're sojourners, but we're not alone. Notice that he writes to multiple churches with multiple believers who are God's chosen people and who are all suffering for their faith together. Now, I have an illustration, and I, I asked a few people in advance to come up here and help me with it. So, if I talk to you, please come up right now. You know who you are. Come on up here. Just stand. That's all you need to do. All right, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. That was it. That was the whole illustration. Let me see if we can unpack this a little bit. For four of these five people, I, I told them, when I clap, I want you to clap. But for one, I didn't tell them what to do. Okay? And I wanted to see if 
when the rest of us started clapping, they would clap too, or if they wouldn't clap. Now, actually, you didn't clap. Which means it didn't happen the way that I wanted to. But y'all clapped. Which means it did happen the way that I wanted it to. Y'all can go sit down. Listen, there's been so much study done on applause and how uh, clapping is actually influenced by group dynamics, right? So, what happens is, is when one person starts clapping, other people start clapping. It happened in this room. Even though Nathaniel didn't start clapping, like I was hoping he would, the rest of you did. Just because, hey, we're gonna be, we're gonna be part of it. We're gonna, we're gonna fit in, right? It's this pressure. And actually, when someone quits, <laughs> it, like, it takes someone who's like, I'm done. And then a few people around them are like, you know what, I'm done too. And when it reaches a sufficient mass, it stops. I did this illustration because peer pressure is when you feel compelled, when you feel strongly pressured or pushed to do something just because you want to fit in and be accepted by people. Now, clapping is just a silly example of that. Sadly, though, sometimes we lose sight of who we are and we compromise because fitting in becomes more important than following Christ. We, we compromise because fitting in becomes more important than following Christ. Now, it could be something superficial, like wanting to dress a certain way or have a certain pair of shoes just to be cool, even if you don't use that language. But it could be more serious. I mean, how many people have started drinking or doing drugs because all their friends were doing it? Or any number of other things. I mean, this is this, just to give you an idea of how far this can go. Herod killed John the Baptist, and Pilate killed Jesus because of the pressure <laughs> to please people. It led to murder. Like this pressure to belong is so strong. It's so powerful, this need to fit in. We need positive peer pressure, people to help us follow Christ. Those people who understand their identity as God's chosen and beloved people are equipped to resist the sinful norms of the culture and to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. How? How are they equipped? Well, as human beings, we've just seen we don't embrace rejection easily. <laughs> we we, we want to belong and fit in. We want to be accepted. We don't want to be outsiders. We don't want to be strangers. So the peer pressure, the pressure to conform to the world is really strong. But as God's chosen and beloved people, you do belong. You have a home. You have a people. You do fit in. You're part of God's covenant people. That's what gives us the strength to resist pressure to conform to the culture and live for Christ. It's the power of belonging, but in a positive direction. That is why it's so important that you belong to a church body. 
We're not meant to live the Christian life alone. When, when you're alone, it is hard to be different. Isolation makes us weak individually, but it also weakens the church as a whole. That's why fellowship is so important to our church. If we're going to make it, if we're going to be faithful to Jesus Christ in the face of suffering for our faith, we've got to be committed to one another. We've got to be in a tight-knit community where we can encourage one another in the faith. We can share the same commitment to Jesus Christ. The Christian family and the Christian church are meant to be a haven in a hostile world. So parents, that means we need to be thoughtful and deliberate in training our children. Training them not to be afraid to look strange in society. Teaching them to care more about what God thinks of us than what people think of us. And let me tell you, that is hard. I struggle with that. We live in a society that pressures and intimidates people to conform. But as Christians, we do not go along to get along in the culture. We serve Christ above all, and that means swimming upstream. We don't find our belonging in the world. We find our belonging here. This is your family. These are your people. This is where you belong. This is where you gain strength, encouragement to go and face the world and be faithful to Jesus Christ. You're a sojourner here on earth, but you're not alone. I think so often in this world, we feel like we're all alone. We feel like our family is all alone. Swimming upstream. Amen? Amen. But you're not, brothers and sisters. Is it possible that a time of greater persecution or opposition is coming? Yeah, maybe. But we're already facing opposition for our faith right now. To remain faithful to Christ, you need to know who you are. You're God's chosen and beloved pilgrim. The triune God has accomplished your salvation. That is secure no matter what you face in this life. Rest in that. You belong to God's covenant people, secondly, and they are walking with you on this road to glory. We face suffering because we follow a different king, but our suffering is a kind of gift because it burns away false hopes and distractions in this life, like a purifying fire. As God's people, suffering is not the only thing that you've been promised. You have also been promised salvation. You have this great hope, this inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. And that's where Peter is going to focus next. He wants to make sure that we know that belonging to Jesus and following Jesus is worth any sacrifice, any price. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just we thank you this morning, this afternoon, for choosing us in Christ as your treasured possessions. We thank you for setting us apart and making us holy through the work of your Spirit. We thank you for saving us and securing us through the blood of Jesus. And we thank you for the hope of heaven. And we just ask that you would help us to be obedient to Jesus as sojourners in a foreign land. Would you help us to remain hopeful and holy in a hostile world? As we study this book, 
together. Would you please encourage and equip us to remain faithful to Jesus even when we suffer for Him, for His name. Lord, we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.